Hi, my name is Daniel Levin. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. We're continuing our theme of polar medicine today, but jumping into the present with Dr. Chris Davis, the former director of polar medicine operations for the University of Colorado. You'll get to hear how current polar operations differ from those of the past and compare the two to see what lessons we've learned and which we haven't from our earlier explorers. So without further ado, Dr. Chris Davis. So why don't you start with uh, telling me who you are and what, what it is you do now? Well, fair. Um, yeah, my name is Chris Davis. I'm the fellowship director for wilderness and osteomedicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And, you know, up until, I guess, actually this month, I was the medical director for Arctic field support for um, for CH2NM Hill, which which sort of runs the contract for um, the North Pole logistics, specifically Greenland. Um, and then currently I sort of serve in a sort of consultancy role and, and as a associate uh, director at, at this point. So that's who I am. Well, so so tell me a little more about what that what that means providing medical support for North Pole services. Yeah, the, um, you know the the Arctic program as opposed to the Antarctic program is is a bit smaller. Um, there, it operates in you know in multiple countries as opposed to Antarctica, which is sort of this sort of black box of um, laws and this sort of consortium, as it were, and, and uh, the North Pole really is is um, really a collaboration between the U.S. and Russia and Greenland um, and Canada. You know, it, it's it's sort of a different politically. Um, the missions, I, I guess, between the two are similar. You know, in the Arctic, it, at least historically, uh, the scientific mission has been about um, climate change research, uh, and field teams go uh, really through multiple countries and and perform experiments, and and obviously need uh, medical support when they're in some of these very remote and harsh environments. So we, you know, we do. I guess there's sort of four pillars to what we do. We, um, you know, we provide telemedicine support to any field team that is in the Arctic, uh, regardless of sort of where they are. Um, we outfit and, you know, inventory and um, distribute medical kits for all of those field teams. Um, and then we maintain, which I guess you could call, Sort of an almost an urgent care facility uh, at one of the big research field stations at Summit Station in Greenland, which is sort of in the middle of the ice cap, in the middle of that um, island, um, which is very high. It's sort of above ten thousand feet, very dry and very remote. So yeah. high, dry, and far away. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well so, so does that mean that I, when you're doing this, I'm, I'm assuming that that doesn't mean that you're jumping around, flying out to all of these different places whenever somebody calls you. So how do you um, how do you coordinate that kind of care? 
Sure. Yeah. The uh, we'll sort of. I, I guess we can take this in two flavors. You know, the first would would be like, how do we support these field teams? And that's actually relatively simple. You know, we have a we have a sort of a central call center um, that serves you know the greater public, as it were, who um, who are interested in services from the from UC Health, that's the University of Colorado um, Health, um, and we use that infrastructure um, to sort of serve as a sort of a touch point um, for these um, for these Arctic field teams. So let's say you are just you're you're on a um, you're doing a science experiment in Greenland, and you know as part of um, I guess as part of your briefing and your your safety um, briefing, you would get a sat phone and instructions as to, hey, if there's something medical going on, um, you call this number, and that number basically plugs you in with someone who has training in wilderness medicine and sort of expedition medicine, and they can give you sort of real-time advice to handle whatever urgency or emergency that you're that you're having. So that's sort of the, the field support side um, of, of this project. And then the summit side is, is different. Instead of it being sort of decentralized, that's a very sort of centralized process. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure there. There are several buildings. There's a lot of volume of participants who come into Summit Station. Again, it's people flying from sea level, and they're flying in above 10,000 feet, uh, and so there's a lot of altitude illness. So in the high season, uh, and, and that really runs from April through about August, we actually send um, a paramedic who's sort of you know part of our team uh, up to that um, field station, and they're sort of our eyes and ears, right? And they are. Mm handling safety briefings, and there are um, sort of our uh, immediate sort of first responder resource should something dramatic happen, um, and then they're supported by our sort of uh, team um, at the University of Colorado. And that's that's that's, a, that's a, the sort of Arctic summer? Exactly. Yep, that's Arctic summer. Exactly. April April through August. Um, now that that station is open, it, 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 as it turns out, um, it's actually less expensive to keep it open year round than to shut it down in sort of you know northern hemisphere fall and open it back up in the spring. Uh, I guess that that's sort of when you know, when the, when the when the bean counters have sort of or encountered that question, it's actually. Um, less expensive to actually send a caretaker crew up there to sort of keep the generator on and keep all the systems running than it is to shut it down and turn it on. So we support them through the winter, but we don't have one of our sort of core employees up there during that winter season. How many people are up there during that winter time? There's really only five or six up there in the winter, um, as opposed to the summer when you sort of have this sort of rotating uh, population of 50 to 60. Uh, and there are, you know, there are visitors, there's sort of core staff, um, and, and, and sort of the mix thereof. So there's a lot of 
turnover, you sort of can come in and and perhaps do an experiment for a couple of weeks and then sort of rotate out um, huh. as opposed to sort of the, the core operational staff that are you know, literally keeping the lights on, you know, feeding people. The recording gets hard to hear at this point, so I'm going to add in what he was saying. He described the difference between the core staff, which are maintenance crews, operations, uh, chef, electricians, carpenters, that kind of thing. There are only a few of them, and they live up there for much longer stretches at a time than the researchers who may cycle in and out at the duration of their experiments, which are weeks, months, sometimes longer, but usually not that as long as the core staff would be. Gotcha. Um, now, so in broad strokes, we kind of covered it a little bit politically and touched on it a little bit, but what is the environment like up there? Is it like how cold is it? How high is it? What kind of stuff are you dealing with? Yeah, that, yeah, great question. So um, it is, it's, it's definitely, it's very similar to the, sort of the true South Pole um, in that it is, it is a, a high, a, you know, it, it's a, the altitude is, is quite high, especially if you're flying in from sea level. Um, again, above, it's, it's about, you know, 10,500 feet um, or, you know, around 3,000 meters or thereabouts. Um, it is certainly very cold during the winter and shoulder seasons. Um, you know, when I was, when I visited up there this last spring, you know, it was negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit um, with the wind blowing. So, you know, a very harsh environment. Um, and Sunbathing you know, weather. And, and yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so, you know, I mean, so so there's lots of opportunity for people, especially if you're sort of, sort of flying in um, and you're not necessarily conditioned yet to that environment for illness or injury to occur. Um, that being said, sort of people who stay over the winter are very hardened to that, understand the environment, and understand how to stay safe and well. Um, but it is, it, is, it, it is incredibly harsh during, I would say, I don't know, nine months out of the year. Now, in the summer season, it actually can get to, you know, around freezing temperatures. Uh, it can be, it can feel quite mild. Um, there's, you know, there, it's, it's kind of funny in the sort of the main, what we call the big house, um, right in one of these sort of antechambers, you know, most of the buildings have double doors to insulate from uh, the outside cold, right? So you, it, it mm -hmm. is almost sort of like space-like. Um, but there's a, there's a, a big box full of like wiffle ball bats and volleyballs and beach balls. So when like when you get that rare high pressure system and that temperature warms up, um, people are outside and and trying to enjoy themselves. So that does happen through the year. So so in the uh, in the cold season you're dealing with frostbite and hypothermia. In the summer season you're dealing with slips, falls, sprained ankles, and wiffle ball bat injuries. Yep, you got it. Yep. The wiffle bottle bat injuries are, are absolutely the, the, the worst of the worst, no doubt. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> enough. 
Um, you know, busy, so so I, I'm more more seriously on this sort of thing, what kind of concerns are you like? What kind of injuries or or illnesses do you generally have to handle um, during summer or winter field or at the summit station itself? Yeah, I guess I would. Um, sort of thinking about this on the fly, but there's sort of three or four types of categories. There's sort of the um, there the, the first would be altitude illness. And again, as I've as I've said a number of times, a, a lot of people are flying in from sea level. They're flying above 10,000 feet, and so we get attack rates of acute mountain sickness that are at about 30 or 40 percent. Um, and so that would be a, a very common condition, um, certainly at least for acute mountain sickness. For high altitude pulmonary edema or cerebral edema, that's still quite rare. It still happens historically, um, but there are, again, when you think about something like McMurdo, which has thousands of people, um, we just don't have the volumes that we see lots of cases of hate or haze. Um, mm-hmm. But altitude is certainly certainly a, a concern. So that, that would be sort of the first category. Um, the next category would just be sort of your typical uh, sort of expedition, musculoskeletal, diarrhea, um, you know, that, that sort of usual relatively low acuity stuff that just happens when you're in sort of a field environment. Um, and I guess that would also include things like urinary tract infections and um, I guess sort of Sprains, strains, etc. So, the I guess the third category would be um, there is a sort of a what we call a PQ process, which is a, a you know sort of a, a personal um, qualifying process. Or um, and some people um, with chronic medical issues are allowed to go up into that environment if that issue is stable, and they can sort of make the argument that that issue is stable. Um, and sometimes we have to deal with exacerbations of those issues, whether it be diabetes or Crohn's disease or, you know, any of the other sort of multitude of chronic chronic issues that are, that are present across our, pop, you know, populations. And then the last category would be catastrophic, you know, I mean, like someone falls off of, you know, one of these weather towers that is 50 meters high or gets lost and gets sort of horrific frostbite. And those types of issues are very rare, which is good. And and so I've been sort of plugged in for the last two years. And just to give you a sense, like we've not had to actually emergently medically evacuate someone during that period. Has it happened historically? Absolutely. And will it at some point happen in the future? Absolutely as well. Um, mm. And that's certainly the kind of, you know, crisis that we that we train our teams for, um, but it is definitely rare. Now, is this like, is, is the reason for those kinds of things being so rare, is that a statistics thing and they just don't happen often? Or is this, are there preventive measures put in place? I, I think it's both. Um, I, I, you know, it is, again, compared to the Antarctic, there are fewer, there frankly, are fewer 
bodies up there and fewer person hours. And so statistically, that sort of helps. Um, but also, there is a huge emphasis on safety and preventing injuries. And probably, again, probably both of those things contribute to just this being, you know, these sort of catastrophic events being rare. Okay. So if you're, if you're, say we're, you know, I, I've got a team that's planning to go out to the, to the Arctic area. What, what, what's the process? How does that begin? They have their, their science goal, but what, what do they do medically to get there? And what's the process when they are there and then coming home? Are there any, is there any kind of procedural things that you go through? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I guess let me hit on some of the, the high points. So I, I guess, so the first thing is that any trip um, that would be sponsored by the NSF, the National Science Foundation, you know, would get a risk analysis, right? It would be, you know, what is this trip? Uh, you know, what um, what could go wrong? Are you using heavy, you know, heavy machinery? Are you drilling? Are you far, far away from um, – any other medical resources because, you know, quite possibly you could do a lot of these experiments and actually be close to towns or cities that actually have medical resources. So you just have a sort of a general risk analysis to, to begin with. And based on that risk analysis, you know, you would get sort of, you know, proportionate medical resources assigned to you. So if it was a relatively low-risk trip, you might get just um, your team would get some field training, um, sort of what we call sort of our Arctic first aid course that everyone's required to do that covers a whole host of things from, you know, polar bear attacks to um, you know, prevention of cold injuries to how to use the telemedicine system. So that would be one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum would be, hey, maybe you are actually traversing Greenland by snowmobile and you're doing, um, you're basically drilling ice cores to, you know, look at whatever X experiment. Um, and so you have sort of heavy machinery. And then in that case, you might actually then say, hey, this is a higher risk trip. We're going to actually send someone who is has some um, formal medic, you know, like truly formal medical first aid training, whether or not that's wilderness first responder or higher. Um, and you may actually have some sort of professional guiding experience too to sort of ameliorate risk of glacier travel, et cetera. Um, so, and in that case you might get outfitted with more medical resources. Your medical kit would have probably um, more capacity, more actual prescription medicines to actually deal with emergencies when you, when you don't actually have backup support. So, again, sort of big themes is it all starts with the risk analysis and what's going on for your experiment um, and how much risk is there. And then we try to um, grade that and assign medical support based on that risk. Okay. So there's like, there's that operational risk management thing and then you kind of custom build a kit for whatever expedition is being planned, whether 
depending on what they're doing and where they're going to be. Yeah, I think that's fair. In 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 you know, custom maybe is too strong a word. It's not like that we have <laughs> there's 50 different expeditions and every one of them has a different kit. That's not really the case. It uh, you could really be like bucket this into hey, is this a low risk you know trip, a medium risk trip, a high risk trip, that sort of right. thing, and then right, we would sense. you know proportion yeah because we. Not everything can be individualized because then you can't scale it, um, but you can certainly bucket it. Okay, so they're so they're category based kits. That makes sense. Um, and are there? Um, do you also take care of, of ship based issues, or is that a separate part of NSF? Yeah, that that is um, that is separate. Uh, well, there, I mean, there are polar ship-based um, experiments going on, and certainly I, I think probably by volume there's probably more of that going on in the Antarctic, um, but that's not something that we have uh, traditionally sort of delved into. Okay. All right, so we've got my expedition up there. We've gone through a risk assessment, and one of our people develops a relatively minor issue, but it has to be dealt with. So then we we... How do, what do we do then? The next, what's the next step in terms of getting definitive help? Um, yeah. That, um, so, so let's. I guess let's sort of. Maybe we'll take the example of someone's doing a sort of a Greenland inland traverse. That would be sort of a, a, a typical sort of big, you know, um, big long, um, resource intensive. Uh, expedition. So, mm-hmm. so in that case, that that would be you. You probably get outfitted with a pretty substantial medical kit, which would have prescription pain medicines and antibiotics, etc. And let's say there was an injury or an illness um, in some in a trip like that, there would usually be uh, an embedded again medical resource. Let's say that's a wilderness first responder. Um, so let's say they, they have identified an issue. They would, I mean, really to, to use some of those prescription resources, they would plug into the telemedicine service. So they would call the on-call doc and say, hey, doc, this is what I got. I've got, let's say this is a, a 30-year-old um, female who's got flank pain and fever and vomiting, um, and it sounds like it's, you know, a, a kidney infection. It sounds like it's pylo, um, and she's got burning when she pees. She, she, you know, she looks, she looks ill, and I want to, I want to treat her. Um, mm-hmm. And the doc on call would sort of talk through and sort of suss out um, and probably even talk directly with the patient. Uh, not just the provider who's uh, the medical provider who's there, and, and tr- really try and get a feel of you know what's going on. Hey, I mean, is there could there be a kidney stone uh, complicating this? I mean, how sick is this patient? And really try and make a call first off of hey, can we try and manage this in the field first, or is this something that really needs um, something more intensive and something that needs to be evacuated? Um, and that's a big branch point. Um, so, again, medical evacuations overall are rare. So, you know, for 
we're sort of playing through this thought experiment. Right. Let's say it's, say it's, it's Pilo. Hey, we, we've got a number of antibiotics that are in the medical kit. Let's try that, and then let's touch base in 12 hours and see how the patient is doing. So that right. would be pretty common. Um, and, you know, try something that's field-based. Um, make a, you know, give it some tincture of time touch base in a sort of structured format and see whether or not that patient is improving. And if the patient's improving, hey, we're, we're good. Um, continue on with your, you know, what's for your science mission uh, and what you're there to, to actually accomplish. Um, and if you're not, then it, it's time to escalate and say, hey, do we need to get this person out of this very remote, austere environment and, and call in some some resources to do that or not. So. Understood. Yeah. Um, so with this kind of with this kind of a, a scenario, are they calling you on a satellite phone and, it, and it's just audio only, or is there a cell network up there? What's the what's the communication system? Yeah. It, yeah. Also, it's sort of a great question. So, and um, and I'll it. Uh, this may become boring. Please cut me off at any time. <laughs> So it, it, of course, right, it depends, right? So if, it, if this is field-based, then it is audio-only, sat phone, you know, just history-based. Um, right. So, and, and, and that is if you are on, right, if you're in the middle of the glacier in Nowheresville and in wherever, whether or not this is Greenland, Alaska, you know, Canada, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're at Summit, at, again, Summit Resource Station, um, it's a little bit different. Um, and still, most of this is audio-based, but we certainly can include sort of images um, or, I mean, we can get sort of a picture. Um, we could get probably a brief video connection to sort of make a determination of sick or not sick. Um, but um uh just sort of internet bandwidth up there is shockingly expensive and so we can get most of what we need out of audio and that's i mean quite honestly in the in the sort of the whole spectrum of telemedicine um most of telemedicine even though we sort of espouse the sort of video based or crazy remote monitoring Still, the majority of telemedicine is conducted by an audio connection, whether that be FaceTime, audio, or telephone, or et cetera. And, and gotcha. we can make a lot of good decisions just using that modality. Um, but again, at Summit Station, again, we can snap pictures, send them through sort of a, a HIPAA-compliant format, and make decisions you know, if there's a, a cut or a wound, is it looking infected, you know, sort of, et cetera, et cetera. So does that does that paint enough of the picture there? Oh, very clearly, yeah. Um, and then yeah. The, the other side of it is, so we've got the patient, we've got the communications, and you say there's the, there's the on-call doc. Um, who are these on-call doctors, and are like, do they have access to specialists? That, like, are, or are they, what kind of training do they have? Yeah, that, yeah, that's, also, obviously, a great question. So most of these docs, so, it, so the University of Colorado, there's there's a pretty deep bench of um, 
you know, emergency medicine physicians who have either done formal fellowship training in wilderness medicine or, or have sort of just longitudinally have had an interest in, in that subject. And so those are the docs that take primary call. Um, and so they're the sort of the first line sort of in the trenches um, who answer these calls um, to begin with. And if, you know, if something, um, again, this is rare, but if, if it were that we needed further sort of, you know, tertiary care or subspecialty support, then we could, um, very easily connect with any of our subspecialists that are on call and, and try and capture, um, and hone in on on a particular sort of clinical question, whether or not it's whatever management of an MI um, or management of a kidney stone, et cetera. Um, that again is quite rare, at least when we sort of compare that. And again, this is driven just by person hours in the field when we compare that to the Antarctic when there are thousands of people down there as opposed to hundreds. So. Yeah, it's a very different scenario. Uh, and I yeah. know you mentioned that these are very rare, but um, if you had to call in an evacuation, how logistically, how does that work? Who's the, what agency do you use? Is it complicated by governments? Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And, and it really is. It's, it's fascinating, right? So, um, so a lot of sort of the Arctic science is occurring in Greenland. And, um, you know, Greenland, at least historically, was sort of this province of Denmark, but now it is relatively autonomous. Um, but it still uses a lot of actually sort of re European resources and is reliant on um, sort of a European skill set. So what's interesting as well is sort of historically – you know, the, the United States had a number of air bases and facilities in that area during the Cold War, and and a lot of that uh, infrastructure still persists. So um, for Summit Station, that is actually um, supported largely by uh, the Air National Guard. Right? So they um, have a flight schedule, and they fly up uh, – during sort of the summer high season and have a, you know, a, a, I guess a relatively heavy presence there that is not 100%, but they're there, let's say it's half the time between April and September. So if something were to happen when the Air National Guard was in Greenland, then that would be our first call. So like, hey, there's somebody injured at Summit Station. Air National Guard assets are actually there. We're going to use those assets and fly up and take somebody out. So that would be sort of mm -hmm. first line. Now, and maybe we'll say that's, again, this is rough. Maybe that's 50%, 60% of the time. So for the other 40% um, of the time, we'd actually rely on Greenlandic air assets to airlift someone out. So if we didn't have an Air National Guard asset, we would call up the government of Greenland and say, hey, there's someone injured. Um, can you can you help us and get this person out? And we would fly them to 
um, using that air asset, we'd fly them to one of the typically the sort of western um, coastal cities like Nuke or Lulasat and and get them stabilized at um, one of those cities or towns that actually has you know physician there and then um, and then refer them depending on their illness or injury wherever they would need to go either directly to the U.S. or perhaps to uh, Iceland sort of etc. So th- those are that's sort of the sort of binary depending on what um, air assets are available and uh, mm-hmm. and that's sort of summer season dependent. In the winter, uh, the Air National Guard isn't there, and so it's uh, all Greenlandic or sort of Danish um, uh, Danish support or air assets. Yep. And and you can still get people out in the winter. The weather's not awful. I mean, it, it is awful, and it would be it would absolutely be risky um but there are it is possible um it would just have to be it's so rare it would just have to be hey what is what's the risk to the patient um like and yeah exactly it would definitely be case driven absolutely just like it would be in the antarctic you know um um no truly is this life threatening can we wait this out can we support this through telemedicine? It would definitely be sort of uh, case by pay, case by case. Yeah. And, and uh, what's what's the time frame on these? If you were to get somebody to definitive care, is it hours, days, weeks? No, it's it's in in Greenland. It's probably it's it's days. Um, you know, it, it you know Iceland is is a three hour flight um, and. Um, you know, a nuke, again, the capital, which has, you know, European or American sort of level medical resources with, you know, CAT scans, et cetera, and surgeons, et cetera, is just a couple hours away by flight as well. So I would say, and, and again, we, just to compare polar, at least for Greenland, um, if we compare sort of the North Pole to the South Pole, probably the logistics all in all are a bit easier. This is another part where the recording becomes difficult to hear. I'd asked Chris if he could t- tell me about any evacuations he'd been involved in, and he reiterated the point that he hadn't been involved in any during his directorship, and that they really are exceedingly rare. And then he couldn't share any of the specifics about evacuations that had occurred in the past, but there really weren't that many stories to tell. Is there any part of the system that you think didn't work well or could be improved? Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, you know, I think, I guess there would be two things that I would call out. Um, the first would be, um, you know, how to really efficiently organize and I guess an in, in inventory process and, and right and this is in in terms of getting medical resources to this um, to summit station and 
right? And so there's so many factors there. So the first would be, right, we have to actually operate under Greenlandic regulations, right? And so they want to actually, mm. they want to actually source um, pharmaceuticals that are actually through the Greenlandic government wherever possible. And that works most of the time, but not sort of all the time. So what do you, what do you, what do you do there? Um, so that would sort of be the first thing about like, how do we, how do we make this better? The second would be, um, even though it is, I guess, even though we can get by with audio, you know, video would be, uh, superior. Uh, I mean, it just allows most, at least most emergency docs can thin slice and can just see someone and understand whether or not they are sort of sick or not sick. And having that layer would be, um, would be a bonus. Um, but it is, again, it's so, it, I mean, just to give you a sense, I think truly the internet bill for Summit Station is like $15,000 a month. So just sort of, you can imagine if you're trying to just hop on to FaceTime, what that would, out, what that would actually cost, right? So, um, well, don't so tell Comcast, a, they're getting up there now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, oh, can you, can you imagine? I mean, that's just, that's just a heck of a bill. So, um, so that would be one. And then, um, and then, right, and then we have drug shortages as well, right? So, like, uh, you know, our, I don't know where, what's going on in your hospital right now, but we can barely get IV narcotics in our emergency room, right? So how do we, you know, how do we actually supply a, a crazy medical outpost in Greenland with adequate analgesia, Um and, and so there's a certain amount of improv- improvisation that has to happen there. Um, so those are things that you know, could and should work better and sort of require triangulation with um, you know, governmental policy and regulation and compliance, um, all without sacrificing capability and patient care. So. Those, those so are that, sort of the, the day-to-day challenges. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, is, is that now that last one about supply? Is that more a function of not being able to get the meds that you know you need up there, or is it more, is it a function of running out of meds and not having an adequate, um, having a mismatch between uh, expected incidents and actual incidents of, of conditions? It, it's, um, I actually would say it's probably more the former, right? I, again, when you, when okay. you think about IV, IV pay meds, um, we just can't, we just can't get them, right? If we can't get, get them in our hospital, then we're not going to, um, be able to say to the hospital, hey, we need to ship these to somewhere else because we can't even get them in the hospital. Um, right. It's pretty rare that we, um, sort of get sort of caught because we've used up all of our, again, let's, let's take um, acute mountain sickness, right? We see a lot of acute mountain sickness. We actually have a lot of oxygen resources up there. We have a lot of acetazolamide. It would be like, it would be, in fact, I don't think it's ever happened where we've, we've like run out of acetazolamide. That just doesn't really happen. Um, but we still have to deal with 
sort of expiring medications um, and sort of limited shelf life and also limited opportunities to um, ship those medicines in, um, right? So we only have a couple of, you know, a few touch points through the year. Um, so that's an issue. Uh, and then and then cost, right? So all of this stuff has to be done in a cost-efficient environment. So, so you know, where are we pushing and pulling? Do we sort of we do we push expiration dates um, and say, hey, we you know it's the winter season. We don't think we're going to use a lot of meds, so we're not going to order something until sort of spring and we know it's high season. Or do we try and keep things always fresh on the shelf? You know, th these are um, these are all sort of the lenses that we have to focus these decisions through. Okay. Now that makes sense. Um, you know, as, as you were talking about altitude, I, I thought of another question on this in that since this is such a high latitude, does, uh, is this impacted like the South Pole with the Coriolis effect and, and having a, the, essentially the, the spin of the Earth pull the atmosphere down? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. So the the actual like the actual elevation is whatever ten thousand five hundred, but the effective elevation is higher, um, which is driven by latitude, but is also can be driven by weather. Right, you get a low pressure front, you raise oh, yeah. the effective altitude as well. Um, so that can push you know the effective altitude above eleven thousand feet, which is sort of when we're getting into this sort of dangerous inflection point where we see more cases of um, high-altitude pulmonary edema and cerebral edema. Again, however, relatively low volumes of people going through that, and so we don't see, you know, we don't see those cases often, which is which is good. But absolutely, yeah. those those forces are at play. Okay. Um, and, and just in, in general from this, from your experiences in that with uh, Summit Station and these Arctic field camps, are there any lessons from that experience you would think are worth applying to the uh, world of medicine at large? Yeah, that's um, such a like a big question. Um, I, I guess I would say. You know, we the, the lessons that we are, or the issues that we have to deal with at, at, a, at a place like Summit Station are 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 not altogether alien to you know how you would manage resources in 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 a you know in, in a different environment because everyone has to make cost conscious resource you know decisions. Um, it's just the frame of reference is just a little bit different. Um, so, yeah, it is that, you know, the lessons to be learned are, um, if I could summarize them, are preventative medicine goes a long way um, and investing in that kind of system to prevent injuries and illness is critical, uh, especially when something like a medical evacuation can cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and then you know again how do we 
um, when, when resources are limited, how do we uh, align mission and cost um, to sort of get the, the biggest bang for our buck? And that's what anybody in a sort of, you know, in a medical leadership position would be weighing on a daily basis. Okay. Um, kind of out of the flow of this, I just had one other question I thought of, and that was uh, what is the most common medicine that you ended up using up there? Oh, um, well, ibuprofen by far, um, <laughs> if, that, if, that, if that counts. I'm not, you know. Um, <laughs> it certainly counts. Yeah, but it's, yeah, but it's, it's definitely, it's vitamin I up there um, for, you know, again, for, for high altitude headache or mild altitude sickness or, you know, your sh- people up there, everyone shovels snow up there, right? You got a sore back. Um, you step into, you know, some sort of snow hole and sprain your knee. All, you know, yeah, ibuprofen is far and away the, 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 the most used drug up at, up in Greenland. Was there any intervention used up there frequently that surprised you? Um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Again, I'd say to a a large degree, we're sort of over prepared with, you know, we have Gamoff bags and, you know, I mean, really some pretty high, you know, high resource intensive things and, and again, thankfully, we we don't actually have to use them that often. Okay. And then a lot of the people that are listening to this sort of listening to this kind of thing are interested in getting involved or learning more about this. Are, and are there any resources or places or people you would refer those those uh, interested parties to? Yeah, I, I would say again, we we hire you know what we call a summer medic. Um, you know, every year. And so, uh, and we post that position on our, sort of the University of Colorado HR website. Um, as, as you can imagine, it, it's incredibly expensive to get somebody up to Greenland and to work in these environments. And so it's, it's not easy to sort of, sort of slip in and have a, a week long experience and then come out that, that doesn't sort of, um, cost effective. Just, just like you'd expect in something like Antarctica oh, yeah. as well, but if you want to, I mean, like there, there are certainly are opportunities to uh, apply for that job, um, and and that's recurring, um, and that's sort of the, I guess the best way to actually get involved. Um, All right. Well, oh, thank you very much for your time talking to me. I don't want to keep you too late. I know you've got an early day. But uh, thanks. My pleasure. I enjoyed speaking about this. Obviously, a passion of mine. And yeah, look look forward to look forward to hearing about how you sort of put this all together. Thank you for your support of this production. Please subscribe to the podcast and the website. And if you like what you hear, help us produce it by donating money or purchasing our merchandise. Thank you to Emily Stratton, our Director of Social Media Outreach, and to Jeremy Seeker, our Director of Communications. Intro and outro music is written and recorded by David Keogh and available at ReverbNation.com slash David Keogh. 
Special thanks to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the idea and to our donors for making it possible. More information on each episode is available through our website at explorationmedicine.com, where you can also contact us with questions, thoughts, and ideas, or post to the discussion forums for each episode. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.